Well, if you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 21. If you're in a Scripture journal, that should be uh, on page 150, I believe. We are going to be in verses 37 of 21 through 22.6 in our time together this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke. They'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along as well. If you're somebody who doesn't have a scripture journal and you want one, there's still one left on the welcome desk. Feel free to grab that if you feel it'll be beneficial to you as we continue through this gospel. So Luke 21, starting verse 37 to 22, 6. If you got it, say I got it. All right, let's read this together. Holy Spirit says through a doctor named Luke, and every day... He, Jesus, was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. 22 verse 1. Now, the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. They feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths in all of our hearts. Today is January the 14th, which I don't think is likely considered by any of you as a significant date in history, but in some sense it is. It was on January 14th, 1741 that someone was born to one of the founding families of Rhode Island that would become, at least for a time, a hero of the revolution. He would grow to be a military officer, even rising to the rank of major general. He would lead American troops with honor and courage at significant battles like Ticonderoga, Quebec, and Saratoga. Although not all of those were victories, they were considered daring, and this man suffered a leg injury that was very serious as a result. Well, eventually he would become disillusioned with his treatment by the powers that be. He thought he should have been hailed as a hero. Instead, he witnessed lower-ranked, less deserving officers elevated before him. In addition, he watched as other officers took credit for his successes in battle. Add to this his growing debt and new marriage, and what you have is the recipe for treason. And indeed, that is precisely what happened. In fact, he became the most famous traitor in America's history. You know by now that I am referring to one Benedict Arnold. He went from hero of the revolution to someone whose name has become synonymous with treachery. If you called someone Benedict Arnold, most everyone knows you believe them to be a person who was once loyal, but has committed some kind of betrayal. It's to say of someone 
they become shamefully and perhaps suddenly disloyal to you or a group. We've been following Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and Luke's gospel since the end of chapter 9. But here in our text this morning, that journey takes a sudden turn. And it does so at the hands of a traitor. By way of someone who was once a loyal and true follower, but then becomes the most famous betrayer in history, surpassing even Benedict Arnold himself. But before that comes, Luke offers us a calm before the storm of Jesus' passion in verses 37 and 38 of chapter 21. It's beginning with chapter 22 that we enter the whirlwind of Jesus' final days, which include the high drama of his final meal with his friends, his arrest, his trial in a kangaroo court, and his crucifixion. But before we get there, Luke tells us this. Look again at your text. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So days before Jesus' death, We see him doing the sorts of things he's done all along, right? Teaching, being near people, praying. He's telling people the gospel. He's in a place where people can rise early and come near and hear him. And they were gathering to hear what he had to say early. And as we know, the people enjoyed hearing him teach because he was different, yes, than all the other religious leaders. And what made him different, do you remember? It's because he taught as one who had authority. So despite the controversies with the leadership that dominated chapter 20, Jesus continues to have the people's ear. And he is not dissuaded from teaching publicly by the leader's antagonism. But I just want you to think about this. Jesus knows that in mere days he will be arrested, yes? Have a crowd shouting that he should be crucified instead of a violent insurrectionist. Be flogged, be mocked, be spat upon, be crucified. And what is he doing in the days leading to those events? He's doing what he's been doing for years, being faithful in the ordinary. You could even call what he's doing mere days before his death downright mundane, couldn't you? If you had, let's say, God forbid, one week to live, and you knew it. What would you be doing with your final days? You know, if you could, if you could somehow survey most Americans, you'd probably get various answers, of course, but they probably all sound something like traveling to places I've never been to and I've always wanted to go, or taking a road trip with the family, or going to their favorite places, or checking off bucket list items, How does Jesus spend his final days before the death he knows looms before him? Ordinary faithfulness. And preaching the gospel. And telling people how they could know God and live. So we see at the end of chapter 21, Jesus being faithful in the ordinary, doing what he's been doing, and then suddenly a dark cloud appears on the horizon. It is, as I mentioned, beginning with chapter 22, that the reader of Luke is thrown headlong into the whirlwind of what is known as Jesus' passion. 
from henceforth, and we've been in this gospel for two years and like three months, right? But from henceforth, the gospel of Luke takes on a different tone, and it takes on a different feel as we walk with Jesus towards his propitiating death. If you were to look, look down again at your text, at the header over chapter 22, in either your Bible or Scripture journal, you'll be greeted with something like the plot to kill Jesus. Yes? And even if you know the story, that's kind of jarring to read, isn't it? The plot to kill Jesus. Who would want to kill Jesus? I mean, we're talking about the perfect God-man here. The one who came to earth from heaven above and has been spending all of his time walking the dusty streets of first century Palestine and teaching and preaching and healing and even raising the dead. We're talking about someone who Touch the untouchable and reach the lonely, the sick, and the marginalized. We're talking about someone who's given sight to the blind and made the lame walk. Who would want him dead? Well, that's what I want us to explore with the remainder of our time this morning, okay? We want to answer in our time together the question, who wanted Jesus dead? And I think you may find the answers both challenging and surprising. First, the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. What do we read in verse 2? The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. The reader of Luke, who's made it this far, is not surprised by this in the slightest, right? We've been told repeatedly that the religious leaders were seeking a way to destroy him. As far back as chapter 6, we see the Pharisees enraged with Jesus and beginning to scheme together on what they might do to get him out of the way. Over and over again, we've seen Jesus clash with religious leaders of various stripes. In fact, if you look just back to chapter 20, Chapter 20 is made up almost entirely of every office that comprises Sanhedrin taking turns trying to trap Jesus so that he might slip up and they might seize him without upsetting the crowds who continued to like Jesus, enjoyed hearing his teaching, as we saw in 21, 37, and 38. So in one sense, we're not surprised that the religious leaders want him dead. We've done this for some time, but I wonder... Should we be surprised by this? I think we should. I think we should be surprised. We, we should see a warning as well for us. Even if we are familiar with the religious leaders' feelings toward Jesus, they really should actually be the ones who supported Jesus the most. Right? Just think about it. The religious leaders are those who knew their Bibles the best, they even memorized large portions of it. They knew what it said about the coming Messiah. They were expecting the promised one to come and liberate them. They knew what they should be looking for. And yet, not only do they miss him, 
but they wanted to kill him. Shouldn't that be surprising? Consider verse 1 of chapter 22, which will come into play again later. It was time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. The religious leaders were the ones who oversaw and sometimes performed the ritual sacrifices. And what were the feasts and the festivals, the sacrifice and the offerings, if not pointers to the one who would come and fulfill them all? A few weeks ago, we considered the temple, didn't we? And we said that Jesus came and shut down the temple, declaring it obsolete, and why? We know on the one hand, it was partly because they had used the temple, the religious leaders are covering for their wicked deeds. Thinking they had performed the proper rituals, they could live however they wanted. But on the other hand, we saw that Jesus was shutting it down because he's the truer and better temple, isn't he? And if we wanted to be properly encompassing the entirety of our Old Testament, we would say this. Not only is Jesus the truer and better temple, he's the truer and better feasts and festivals and sacrifices. Every single sacrifice in the Old Testament was merely a pointer, a signpost, a billboard, a megaphone shouting that one was coming who would fulfill them all, who would be the truer and better. Those things were merely shadows of what Jesus would be the fullness of. And here you have the very people who performed or oversaw all these things, and Jesus comes on the scene. The truer and the better has come, and they not only miss who he is, they react violently against him, even turning to bloodlust. They don't only refuse to bow down to Jesus, they want to actively find a way for him to be killed. The ones who should have hailed him the most are the very ones who will get him executed. Now again, we, don't we, have a generally negative view of the religious leaders in the Gospels. Yes? And not for no reason. But the religious leaders were seen by the populace here as the most holy, pious, and well-respected people in the nation. They were the ones to be emulated. They were the ones who were, you, if you were out in public with your child and you saw one of them, you would lean down and point to them and say, be like them. But what was lurking underneath their religious activity and community respectability were hearts that were far from God. They didn't serve God for God. They served God for themselves. They were indeed moral. They really were. They were indeed very knowledgeable about their Bibles. They indeed performed the proper rituals and religious requirements the way they should have been performed, but they were heartless. Like the Pharisee, do you remember the Pharisee in the parable of chapter 18? Their good deeds were done so that they could justify themselves. So they could try to put God in their debt rather than seeing themselves eternally in God's debt. What they show us is that one, listen friends, you could be very moral and religious and respected and still miss Jesus. Shouldn't that be a warning to us? It it is possible to be very religious, morally scrupulous, knowledgeable of the Bible, perform all sorts of religious duties and rituals, 
and still be unacquainted with Jesus. Still not know him in heart. Still be far from God and thus remain unjustified. One of the scandals of Jesus' ministry that made the religious leaders so angry was the fact that Jesus spent so much time with the riffraff. Isn't that true? This man eats with sinners. It was the marginalized and the sick and the unclean, the unheralded, that he spent the most time with. Why? Well, it was those who were most desperate, who trusted in their own deeds the least, and thus were in a position to receive the grace and mercy of God through Christ. The religious leaders, on the other hand, well, their religion was a self-justifying one that caused them to think that they didn't need grace and mercy because they had earned their way into God's favor. But what they must have missed in all their studying in the Old Testament was that God rejects religious ritual even performed exactly as prescribed if the worshiper isn't doing it out of a love for God. You guys know the name Flannery O'Connor? She was a Georgia native. She wrote short stories, and almost all of them took place in the South. And she often criticized the sort of religion that I've been describing. She said that the South was Christ-haunted, not Christ-centered. And I think one of the more haunting lines from all of her short stories, it appears in a story about a character named Hazel Motts, who grew up, you know, in a very religious home, and he but he never really embraced Jesus. And his family never really did either, but their their religion was one of external deeds done out of fear of God, not a healthy biblical fear, but a fear of punishment if their religious deeds weren't performed properly. Now, the line in question, I think is one of O'Connor's most haunting, is this. She's talking about Mott's. She said there was already a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What is she saying? That it's possible to try to be moral and religious while trying to avoid Jesus because if you are good in yourself, then you don't think you need him. Tim Keller explained it like this. If you, were, if you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, model, and helper, but you are avoiding him as Savior. You are trusting, he says, in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You're trying to save yourself by following Jesus. It is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. The religious leaders were religious indeed, But they didn't know Jesus. They not only missed him, but they hated him. So for us, it is possible to have grown up in church with so many Awana badges, you look like General Patton, and be in the youth group, and serve on this or that committee, be a Sunday school teacher, or a deacon, or a pastor, have 
a list of church activities and achievements and attendance and be well thought of by your peers and the community and be truly morally upright and not know Jesus in your heart. Do you remember the old illustration where the preacher would make you measure the distance between your head and your heart? You know, for most people, it's about 18 inches. And it's about 18 inches that some are going to miss heaven by because they mentally assent to a set of facts and they perform a set of deeds and yet the beauty and glory and majesty and grace of Jesus never wreck them in heart. They do these things to be justified rather than resting in Jesus for justification. They perform deeds thinking this will put God in their debt to give them good things when we are in God's debt and the only way that that debt can be paid is by admitting our bankruptcy and casting ourselves on the mercy of the cross of Christ. The religious leaders miss Jesus because they refuse to deal with their own hearts, don't you see? And their confrontation with their own need for the mercy of God turned them into violent men who would rather have the blood of Christ on their hands than give up their pride. What about you? What kind of religion do you have? Do you pursue worship and obedience from a heart for Jesus? Is he your motive for life? Or do you avoid sin in order to avoid Jesus and his rule in your life? So the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead because he was a threat to them. Not only their power and their control, but on their own self-justifying ways. He was a threat to their hearts, so they wanted him dead. Now, our second one is perhaps even less surprising than the religious leaders. Who else wanted Jesus dead? Number two, Satan wanted Jesus dead. Satan wanted Jesus dead. This is what verse 3 says. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. Satan wanted Jesus dead. We are told repeatedly, including in verse 2 here, that what prevents the religious leaders from arresting and putting Jesus on trial is his popularity, right? Where we know that they try to trap him in chapter 20 because they if they could get him, as mentioned, to fall out of favor with the people, they could seize him without the crowd turning on him. So the dilemma is that the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead, but they don't know how to make it happen. Enter Satan. Satan can help the religious leaders get what they want. See, the religious leaders were perplexed. Right? They had a dilemma. They're out of ideas. They, they try to catch Jesus off guard with these impossible-to-answer questions in public, but Jesus wouldn't be fooled. What could they do now? How about something perhaps they never considered because it seems so far-fetched? What if someone from Jesus' inner circle handed him over? Someone who knows Jesus' schedule and could give them an opportunity to grab Jesus away from the crowds. Well, Satan provides that opportunity for them by influencing one of Jesus' very own disciples. Now, we haven't seen Satan much in Luke's gospel, have we? But the last time we saw him, was way back in chapter 4 when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And after he failed spectacularly, 
Luke tells us this in verse 13. The devil left until an opportune time. Here in chapter 22, we have that opportune time. He's been waiting in the wings for this, and his chance to do away with the Son of God has finally presented itself. How does the opportunity present itself? In the willingness of Judas to be used of Satan to get Jesus killed. See, some have read verse 3 and tried to absolve Judas of complicity because of the devil's influence. But Judas isn't possessed by Satan in the sense that Judas cannot do otherwise. Nor does Satan cause Judas to sin. Satan can only influence Judas because Judas allows it. Judas has opened the door himself and welcomed Satan in. The craftiness of the devil is that he will pounce on our particular weaknesses. He will gladly enter doors we open. He may not lead us to sin, but he can present us opportunities or aid us in the pursuit of it. You think about Jonah? You remember Jonah? Jonah had in his mind that he was not going to go where God called him to go. So he fled from the presence of the Lord, yes? He fled. Jonah fled. Jonah decided he would disobey the Lord's command. And when he fled, he went to the docks. And what so happened to be at the docks, just at the right time, heading in the opposite direction of where God called him to go? A boat. If we are determined to sin, Satan will be more than happy to provide the vessel that will lead us away from the Lord. But we will always be the one who pay the fare. He will provide opportunities, but we will always be the ones who pay. Puritan Thomas Brooks said this, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison to present the sweet, the pleasure, the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device, he deceived our first parents. Satan will make sin look normal, even downright tantalizing. He will make the bait look good. It will dazzle the eyes, but underneath lies a hook. But by the time you realize that there's a hook in there, after you take a huge bite, it's too late. But he can only present the bait, can't he? He cannot make us bite. That's on us. What is Satan after? He is after human misery and whatever will get you away from Jesus. That's what he's after. You think of the woman. You remember the woman we met in chapter 13? Doubled over for 18 years. And we're told there by Luke that it was Satan who did that to her. How on earth did Satan benefit from that? What good did Satan get from a woman being doubled over for 18 years? Nothing. But if people are miserable, Satan is delighted. And Satan saw the perfect opportunity to pounce on Judas and use him to betray Christ so that Jesus could suffer not only the pains of death, but the betrayal and the abandonment of his friends. We have to realize that Satan will use whatever means that are available to get us away from Jesus. Do you know that? 
he used Judas's brewing disloyalty and greed to get him to turn on Jesus. And he will use, my friend, whatever gets your heart racing to get you away from Christ or to get you from having less of Jesus. Whatever works for you in particular, Satan knows. And he will do his best to give you what you want as long as it leads to you being pulled away from devotion to Jesus. Russell Moore said in his book, Tempted and Tried, this. You are being watched. The demonic powers have had millennia to observe human nature, but that's not enough. The spiritual powers out there are expert cosmic farmer ranchers and are customizing a temptation plan that fits the way your desires particularly work. They notice what turns your head, what quickens your pulse. Like the Roman guard, feeling around with a spike in one hand on the Lord Jesus' arm, seeking his vein under the skin, the demonic beings are marking out your weak points, sizing you up so that they might crucify you. They'll find what you want and they'll give it to you. Do we think like that very often, though, when it comes to Satan? You know... <laughs> It's typically when bad things happen to us that we chalk it up to the devil, right? You get a flat tire, whose fault is it? Not like a nail on the road, it's the devil, right? Stub your toe, why is Satan getting after you? How frequently do we encounter some kind of inconvenience or pain of life and say that Satan is after us? We're underestimating our enemy who Peter says prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour, we are limiting him by thinking his attacks come simply through inconvenience, hardships, or struggle. He may very well use hardship and suffering because then he might get us to doubt God's goodness. That's why we need to make sure we aren't wasting our trials, right? But that's not the only way Satan and his demons go after us. Another way he might attack us is by getting us to think we don't need God. Or to get us to take our eyes and priorities off of Jesus. Why don't we ever say that Satan is attacking me when we get that promotion that we've been wanting? That's going to demand more of our time, which will inevitably cause us to give ourselves less to Jesus. Why don't Christian high school and college age students say Satan is after me when they get the popularity that they crave, but it leads them away from the church and towards situations that will tempt them to compromise? Why don't we say Satan is after me when we get more money, which will enable us to rely more on ourselves than we do on God? Why don't we say Satan is attacking me when we get more power or comfort or influence? Why don't we say Satan is after me when we have an opportunity to jam-pack our schedule with things that edge out Bible reading, prayer, and church attendance? Satan wants people to be miserable. But if he could get you away from costly obedience to Jesus through success and comfort, then all the better. You look overseas at our persecuted brothers. His tactics in those different countries to get people to not follow Jesus, 
may be threats of persecution from worldly powers. In America, his tactic might just to be overstuff us with money, comfort, and entertainment. Whatever will work to get you away from Jesus, whatever will keep you from taking up a cross, whatever will get you to rely on something for your happiness other than Christ, could this be why Jesus told us only a few verses ago to keep watch for the cares of life? That could take us captive. And this is why he told us to pray for strength to endure. Richard Lovelace said, It is sometimes forgotten that if the devil can tempt us to do evil, he can also tempt us not to do good. He can glamorize sin, but he could also paint an ugly picture in our minds of any work, which is the will of God, including prayer. Now we could combine this with our first point, can't we? Satan doesn't even mind religiosity as long as it's Christless. Who are his teammates in his pursuit to kill the Lord of glory, a hand-picked follower of Jesus and the most religious people in the land. The saying doesn't mind empty ritual and rote religion as long as it's not from a heart for Christ. He doesn't mind moral goodness as such as long as, as that is what you're trusting in for your justification. He doesn't mind the prosperity gospel that's filling churches and our TV screens because it's about prosperity and not the gospel. You remember Donald Gray, Bar- Donald Gray Barnhouse's question about what a major city would look like if Satan had complete control over it? What do you think it would look like, I wonder? If Satan had complete control over one major American city. Maybe it wouldn't look like you, what you think. Barnhouse said he pastored in Philadelphia, so he said, let's say Satan had complete control over Philadelphia. He asked, what would that look like? This is what it would look like. All of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Say, my friend, do not be fooled. The world is not spiritually neutral ground. Sin, said God in Genesis 4, is crouching at your door. Satan is prowling around seeking whom he might devour. But if you're a Christian, you can watch and pray and resist the devil by the power of Christ. And James tells us he will flee from you. But my friend, my non-Christian friend here today, you simply have no protection against the devil. None. You are completely vulnerable to his influence. So come to Christ. He could give you the strength to endure the onslaught of the devil. And Christian, you could bet if Satan opposed Jesus here, he will oppose the church. Will we give him opportunity? Or will we do what Judas failed to do? Watch ourselves and keep our eyes on Jesus. But of course, the religious leaders and the devil aren't the only ones who want Jesus dead. Judas wants Jesus dead. Point three, Judas wanted Jesus dead. Again, we must not absolve Judas of guilt here due to satanic influence. 
we see here that Judas is the one who approached the chief priests and officers on how he might betray him. Verse 4, Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus. Verse 6, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas went. Judas consented. Judas sought. And you know, Matthew and Mark don't even mention Satan's influence on Judas in their accounts. Matthew says this, one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And you know, the Greek word translated agreed here means mutual agreement, not unilateral coercion from one of the parties. Judas initiated this plot. He agreed to betray Jesus for a bag of silver. This is better than the religious leaders could have ever dreamed. One of Jesus' hand-picked disciples was willing to turn coat and help them arrest him. Not only that, they didn't have to give, go to him, did they, and recruit him. He came to them, and all it cost was a partially sum, a little money. What is the, re- the leader's reaction here? Does it tell us? I think this is chilling. Look at verse 5. And they were glad. They were glad. They were glad that one of Jesus' own would betray him in order for them to have an easier time of killing him. And if the crowd somehow, this is the brilliance of it, isn't it? If the crowd somehow found out or saw, they could just blame it on Judas. He could be the scapegoat, right? And they were glad. The intensity of Judas' betrayal can hardly be overstated. And his betrayal should serve as a warning to all of us, even more perhaps than the warning from the religious leaders. Jesus only picked 12 original disciples, yes? They walked with him. They ate with him. They traveled with him. They laughed with him. They prayed with him. They ministered with him. They were intimately bound together. For years they were together through the highs and the lows of life, and they were together. Why? Because Jesus hand-selected each one. Judas heard all of Jesus' sermons. He was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. He was there to witness Jesus touching lepers and them becoming instantly clean. He was there to see Jesus raise the widow's only son from the dead. He was there when Jesus rebuked a storm and it obeyed. He was there when Jesus cast out a legion of demons from a man who was ensnared. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when Jesus multiplied the loaves and fish, and he even helped distribute the food to the hungry people. He was there at every turn, hearing the firsthand wisdom of God in the flesh, He was there witnessing the life of the only perfect man, seeing his example of what it looked like to live as God intended. He was sent out with other disciples to go preach the good news of the kingdom. He was out performing miracles and casting out demons. He was seeing lives changed. He was going and serving and ministering and healing and preaching. He was a good disciple. 
but things aren't always what they seem, are they? As best I could tell, Greg Oden is the originator of this illustration I'm about to give you. And he, he put it in the form of a fictitious memo, as if Jesus were utilizing a consulting firm, okay? And at the top of the memo, it reads this. From the Jordan Management Consultants, sent to Jesus, the son of Joseph. And it reads like this. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for leadership positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through the computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each one of them with our psychologists and voc vocational aptitude consultants. Is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable, given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine morale. Matthew has been blacklisted by the Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of your candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your CEO and right-hand man. Things aren't always what they seem, are they? Judas was someone we may have regarded as a model servant who deserved a promotion. But Judas shows us, listen, physical proximity to Jesus doesn't therefore come from nor result in love for him. Judas is a vivid illustration of those in Matthew 7, 22 through 23, who come up to Jesus at the end of their lives and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? That's Judas. He did those things. And from all accounts, he seems like he was pretty good at it. And there will may be many, many, many other people in history who walk up to Jesus and say those same words, and then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are those not the most chilling words in all of the Bible? But what do they show us? What does Judas show us? That it isn't about simply the initial step toward Jesus. It isn't even mainly about the deeds you do. You must not simply start. You must not simply continue. You must persevere until the end. Attempts have been made for ages to try to figure out why Judas betrayed the Lord. Why did he take on and pursue his betrayal of the Lord of glory? You want the text? It doesn't tell us, does it? Not explicitly. We, we know he got paid. We know he was greedy, and he was the keeper of the group's money bag. But the text doesn't outright tell us why he turned. Can I suggest that maybe there's a reason for that? Listen to what David Garland says. Attempts to find the reason or reasons to explain why Judas did what he did are diversions. 
that prevent us from looking at our own potential betrayal. If we convince ourselves that Judas acted for this or that reason, we could also convince ourselves that we would not succumb to such disloyalty. If no specific reason is given except greed or Satan, then we are all susceptible. We too can betray Jesus for all the temptations in life that may snare us. Again, I said it last week. I'll say it this week. We must come to a text like this in fear and trembling and not with a confident swagger that says, I would never. There's no reason given for Judas's betrayal because we must heed the warning that echoes throughout all four Gospels that we could be like Jesus if we don't cling to him and if we don't keep our eyes on him and if we don't prioritize and prize him continually above all things and if we don't keep watch of ourselves and pray for the strength to endure unto the end. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach takes it so far as to say that all sin is fundamentally a betrayal. That the mood of betrayal is fundamentally fundamental to the character of all types of sin. Whatever his reason, Judas loved something more than Jesus. Was it money? Was it his own life? Was it ease or comfort? Maybe. But whatever it was, he loved it more than Jesus. Are we not all tantalized at all times in a world like this that is spiritual battleground to love other things more than we do Jesus? Isn't it possible to love good things, even holy things, more than Jesus and open ourselves up to becoming betrayers? Do you guys remember? Of course you do. How the pilgrim's progress ends. You know, Christian gets to the celestial city and he presents his certificate showing that he has been justified by Christ to the person at the gate and he's let right in. Okay? But there's another traveler who gets there about the same time. His name is Ignorance. He knocks on the, the gate of the celestial city. A man peers over. He says, Where'd you come from and what is your desire? Ignorance says, I have eaten and drank in the presence of the king, and he is taught in our streets. Then they asked him for a certificate so that he might go and show it to the king. But Ignorance fumbled in his pockets, and he found none. Don't you have one, asked the man at the gate. Ignorance had no answer. So the king ordered him to be carried away and cast out. This is what the narrator says. I realized that there is a way to hell even from the gate of heaven. That's Judas. That's the people in Matthew 7. That's many, many, many people over the last 2,000 years who claim to love Jesus, maybe even felt good feelings about him for a time, maybe were very religious and respected and knowledgeable, but didn't endure unto the end. For they love something more than Christ. Don't let that be you, beloved. Cling to Christ and he will cling to you. Would you be surprised if I told you that there's one more party that wanted Jesus dead? There's one more, our fourth and final one. Point four, who wanted Jesus dead? God wanted Jesus dead. God wanted Jesus dead. From eternity, 
before time began, before there was a world or stars or galaxies, before there were even people, the divine council decided that the second person of the Trinity would come into the world, would take on flesh, would live a perfect life, and would be executed on a tree for the sins of the world. The religious leaders wanted Jesus dead and did what they could to make that happen, even teaming up with one of Jesus' own disciples. Satan wanted Jesus dead and used the opening provided by Judas to help him execute his plan. Judas wanted Jesus dead and took steps to make that happen, even being paid for his trouble. And yet, none of this would have been enough to kill Jesus were it not part of God's ancient plan. Jesus could not be killed apart from God willing it in ages past. If God didn't want Jesus dead, Jesus would not have died. The death of Christ, my friend, was no accident. It was no misstep in the plan of God. Jesus was not at the mercy of people with no control of his fate. God did not see Jesus' death as a, as a non-preventable accident that he turned and made good use of. Jesus came to die. To be, as John the Baptist said, the spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 1 says that the timing of these events was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. This is no accident. When God instituted the first Passover feast in Exodus, when he liberated the Israelites from Egyptian captivity, he knew that the first Passover and everyone after that was merely a shadow of what Jesus was to be, the fullness of as a spotless lamb of God who was slaughtered for the sins of the world. God knew that the Passover was meaningless without the ultimate Passover to come. Even the Israelites' escape from Egypt was merely a pointer to God's Christ coming to set the captives free from Satan and sin and death in a truer and better exodus. Just as David used Goliath's sword to take his head, so God would use even the maneuverings of Satan to cause Satan's own downfall. What Satan meant for evil in the death of Christ God meant far in the distant past for the ultimate good of the world. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He gives it of his own free will. Do you remember what the prophet said? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him when he chose him. And that's why he chose him. For even as he acted of his own volition, he had a part to play in the divine drama. John Piper says, why should this matter to you? It should matter because if God were not the main actor in the death of Christ, then the death of Christ could not save us from our sins and we would perish in hell forever. The reason the death of Christ is the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news, is God was doing it. 
If you break God's activity from the death of Jesus, you lose the gospel. This was God's doing. It was the highest and deepest point of his love for sinners, his love for you. The plan from eternity's past for our trying God was that the Son would die. That he would be betrayed by someone close to him. That the devil would conspire to have the Son killed that it would turn it to be Satan's own undoing. That the most religious people in the land would react violently to God's anointed and fly his murder. That those he was sent to rescue would shout, crucify him. That his closest friends would either deny him or run away at his most important hour. That he would be flogged and mocked and spat upon, that he would be hoisted on a Roman cross and be executed between terrorists, that he would cry out a cry of dereliction and feel the forsakenness of God for the first time ever, even though he was more spotless than any lamb in the history of the world, that he would drink the cup of God's wrath to the last drop and proclaim, it is finished. Why? Why did God plan and ordain the death of Christ? Why did the Father want the Son to die? Why was the Son willing to go to the cross? For you. To bring you near. To atone for your sins. To justify you. To call you to repent. To equip you to kill sin to empower you to resist the devil, to apprehend you so that you could be his possession forever, to change your heart so that it beats for him, so that you would love him and you could only love him if he loved you first. And what more proof do you need of God's love for you than the foreordained murder of his son, his only son, whom he loves? Why did God want Jesus to die? Because you need an atoning sacrifice. And he provided it in his person. God wanted Jesus dead for us so that our sins penalty, having been paid, our lives purchased, we might live to him and for him and with him forever. So, beloved of God, when you feel the pains and sufferings of life, when you feel like the world's biggest sinner, when you feel the evil one tempting you to sin, when you're tempted to love something more than Jesus, when you wonder how any good can come from your suffering or wonder how you can resist the devil, look to the cross and see the plan of God. See how he could use even the plans of the devil to trap the devil that he could use even the evil plans of sinful people for his good purposes. Look to the cross and see the love of God for you. The old hymn by C.L. Broncroft goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, My sinful soul is counted free.
for God the just is satisfied to look on him 